The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 5. We continue this morning in our study of Luke's Gospel in Luke chapter 5. Luke has been building for us a case for now five chapters, uh, really, of uh, uh, about the, the person and the work of Jesus. If you were with us when we began this journey uh, some months ago, and we began in chapter 1, right at the very beginning, you will remember that Luke is writing this entire gospel uh, to a man by the name of Theophilus, who is, who is struggling. He's struggling with doubts about his faith in Christ. He's a man who at some point has placed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but for whatever reason, uh, the, the challenges of life, maybe circumstances have pressed in on him. We're not told the whole background, but something has caused him to sort of get rattled in the area of his faith and to question whether or not faith in Jesus was really worth it, whether faith in Jesus was really a wise thing to do. Whether Jesus really was who he said he was and who he was presented to be. And so Luke, a, a good friend, comes alongside and he begins to recount for Theophilus in writing here all the reasons why the most intelligent thing a person could ever do is place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's trying to shore up his friend's faith. He's trying to help him with his doubts. And so he's been sort of building a case from the beginning all the way to where we are now that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, and that there is salvation in no one else apart from him. And Luke, like a, like a good systematic thinker, has been presenting evidence to us, sort of layer by layer, bit by bit, building one after the other piece of evidence toward this end. And Luke, we've talked about, is not a, a necessarily a chronological historian. He's cherry-picking events from the life of Jesus, and he's organizing them in a systematic way in order to make a point, in order to shore up this man's faith. And so every, every event that he records, he records for a purpose, and he's building his, his case, if you will. If you want to consider it like a case in court, he's building his case, and he's stacking up the evidence. And he's already showed us some things about Jesus that make him more than just a man. He showed us that he has the power over nature, that he can make fish go wherever he wants them to go, that he can fill up a net in a moment in the wrong place at the wrong time. He has absolute power over nature. He showed us that when he encountered Jesus, encountered Peter by the Sea of Galilee. He showed us that, that he has power over demons, over, over the spiritual realm, over, over a demoniac who shows up in church on a particular Sunday and starts shouting out in the middle of the worship service. And he, with a word, casts that demon out of the man. He's shown us up to this point that Jesus has, has the power to heal physical infirmities. He we saw this last week in depth when Jesus reaches out and touches a man who's absolutely full of leprosy, a hopeless outcast who's destined to die of his disease. And Jesus touches him and the leprosy immediately is gone. And so Luke is showing us Jesus is not just a man. He, no man can do these things. No man can fill up a net with fish. No man can shout at a demon a simple word and the demon is gone. No man can touch a leper. No mere man can touch a leper and make the leprosy immediately evaporate. And Luke records for us another event here in verses 17 through 26 that builds on all of that. And he adds one more layer that really becomes sort of, in my estimation, sort of the slam dunk that you, 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 when you see this, you have to make a decision. Either it's true and he is who he says he is, or he's a, a raving lunatic, one or the other. And so Luke tells us about another story that happened, another real-life story that happened somewhere near Capernaum, according to Mark. Jesus encounters some more people, some interesting folks while he's teaching, and another miracle takes place, actually two miracles. But before we get into the text, really, as far as the narrative goes, there are two notes I want to make that, that sort of uh, wrap up the piece we looked at last week. At the end of our, of our passage in Luke chapter 5, ending up with verse 16 uh, last week, we, we saw 
right after Jesus heals the, the man of leprosy, a couple of things that I think are just worth mentioning. Beginning in verse 15 uh, of chapter 5, Luke writes, But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. But then we get into verse 17 on one of those days when he was teaching. So we go right back into teaching. But tucked in between verse 15 and verse 17 is a very simple, short little note that Luke gives us that we're not going to dwell on today. We're going to come back to this issue later on. But I want to highlight it to you because I think it's important. He simply says, as he's talking about how Jesus' life and ministry is getting busier and busier and the crowds are swelling bigger and bigger, Luke wants us to make sure to understand that there was one means by which Jesus sustained himself when life got busier and the crowds got bigger. Did you know what that was? He made time to get away by himself and to pray. He made time in the middle of the busyness and in the middle of all the demands. He blocked off part of his schedule to get away from the crowds and to get away from the disciples and to be alone with his heavenly Father and to pray. He needed solitude. And he needed quiet, and he needed time to pray. And I just point that out because you and I need that as well. And what the tendency is in your life, I'm sure it's just like it is in mine. When life gets busier, and the demands continue to pile up, and the demands are higher and higher, we begin to think, maybe not exactly in the front of our thoughts, but toward the back, I don't have time to pray today. I don't have time to stop and do that. I'll I'll do that later. But you and I know what happens, right? Later becomes tomorrow, becomes the next day, becomes the next week. And it's important for us to note that Jesus, as the demands increased, the importance of getting away and praying also increased. The more the demands came and the more the crowd swelled, the more important it was for him to stop and find solitude and to pray. Prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit were the two things that buoyed and anchored him in his humanity. And we see evidence of that here. And I think it's noteworthy for us as well. There's never a time when we don't have time to pray, is there? We may not want to pray. We may not want to prioritize that in our lives. But there's always time. It could be said, and it has been said by many others, we don't have time not to. It was a source of Christ's strength. And so in between uh, healing a man with leprosy and crowds gathering and now a teaching assignment in Capernaum in chapter verse 17, Jesus stops and he prays. He recharges his batteries and he gets back into the fight. And so in verse 17, we pick up with our story and, and Luke gives us sort of the, the, the context of this next uh, snapshot, if you will. One of those days, or on one of those days, he was teaching As he was teaching, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Again, Luke just gives us the context here, and he reminds us again what he's told us multiple times. He's made clear that the primary purpose of the ministry of Jesus and the primary thing that he engaged in in his life in ministry was a ministry of teaching and a ministry of preaching. The, the priority of his schedule, the priority of his time was given to teaching and to preaching truth to the mind. It was the mind that he was going after. It was the heart that he was going after as well. And those two things were interconnected. Jesus was speaking truth to the mind in order to connect with the heart of people, to draw them to himself. And that was what he prioritized his time doing. Sometimes he healed people, and we see occasions of this here in the gospel. Sometimes he healed people. Sometimes he paused the teaching to heal people's bodies, to heal their infirmities, to heal their sickness, to cast out demons, and so forth. But that was never the main thrust of what he did. A healed body is still going to die. And Jesus understood that a, a sickness and disease and physical disability is not the worst problem people have. Sometimes he took the time to address that. But his teaching was aimed at matters of the soul, matters that were eternal. 
And that was where he focused his time. But here, in this event, on this day in Capernaum, Jesus brings those two things together in one. And we're going to see that unfold as we walk through. But it gives us another note that's important. Uh, a, a, new, a new part of an audience has shown up for Jesus' teaching. The crowds have increased. People are coming. But word is spread. Even though Jesus has tried to keep under wraps some of the healing ministry, right? Some of the miracles. He hasn't intentionally tried to draw a crowd that way. But inevitably, word spreads. You start casting demons out of people, healing leprosy, and healing every sickness in an entire village, and word's going to spread, right? I mean, gossip goes. It always has, and it still does, right? That's good gossip, and it spreads. But now it's spread wide and far. And it's made its way all the way to Jerusalem, and his teaching ministry and his miracles have drawn attention and they've drawn attention from the populace. They've come out. But it's also drawn attention from the religious leadership who've come. And Luke wants us to know that they're here and they're present on this particular day in Capernaum. Not just the local religious leaders, but the ones from Jerusalem. So word's gotten all the way back to Jerusalem. And the religious leaders are concerned enough about this now to come all the way down to Capernaum to see and hear for themselves what's going on. Now make no mistake about it. They're not interested in faith in Jesus. What they're concerned about is He's competition. People are being drawn away from them and being drawn toward him. And they want to find out what in the world is happening here. They want to find out who this man is and what he's really up to. And Luke gives us one other contextual comment. He says, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Again, we've noted this before, uh, but uh, as Jesus in his incarnation navigated his earthly ministry, he did so in dependence upon his heavenly Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this, so I won't belabor the point. But in taking on human flesh, Jesus willingly set aside the independent activation, if you will, of his divine powers. He took on all of the sort of limitations of human flesh. He can only be in one place at one time in a human body. He has a human mind and a human intellect that had to grow and develop. He couldn't be everywhere. He couldn't do everything in his divinity. But that's a willing, uh, sort of a willing limitation that he took upon himself. But when he did that, he had to depend on his Heavenly Father and he had to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit to do the miraculous. And I think it's no coincidence that we're told that the power of the Lord was with him to heal in pretty close proximity to the fact that he got away and spent time in prayer. I think the two are connected. So Jesus has prayed. He's powered up. His batteries are recharged. And he goes about teaching. And the crowds are there, and the religious leaders are there. And this isn't an ordinary day in the teaching ministry of Jesus, though. Some, some strangers show up that are unexpected. And here's what Luke tells us. Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. Well, Luke, it tells us here, this, 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 this teaching assignment gets wild in a hurry, doesn't it? Some, some unexpected people show up. It's, it's, it's a paralyzed man and his group of friends. And we don't know much about this paralyzed man. We're not given any background information about him. How long has he been paralyzed? We don't know. What caused his paralysis? We don't know. Was it a stroke? Was it an accident? Was it an injury? Was it some sort of disease? We're not told, and it's really not relevant to the story, or Luke would have told us. We just know that he's a paralyzed man, that he's stuck on a bed, and he can't move about on his own. He's a man who's disabled. That's what we would call it today. It's a little different in the first century than it was today because in the first century, in a religious context of first century Judaism, uh, disabled people were looked at with scorn. They were looked at with scorn because the common assumption was that a disability was God's judgment for some heinous kind of sin. And so anybody who was disabled, like this paralyzed man, he, he would have not been looked on positively by people in his community. People would have looked at him and they would have wondered immediately, I wonder, what, I wonder what the awful thing is that that guy did to deserve this from God. I mean, he must be a pretty rotten dude 
for God to lay him on his back for the rest of his life. Sort of like the leper that we looked at last week, he's in a desperate situation. He's not ostracized from community like the leper was, but he still feels the scorn of community like the leper did. And just like the leper, he has no hope of getting better. He has no doctor, and there's no medical treatment that's going to be able to help him. He's stuck on his bed for the rest of his life unless a miracle occurs. That's his lot. But thankfully, this man isn't by himself. Thankfully, praise God, he's got some friends, right? Praise God for good friends. Do you have good friends? I hope you have some good friends in your life. Praise God, this man had good friends. If he didn't have friends in his life, he would have been stuck in his hopeless situation forever. But he has friends. Like him, we're given no background information on them. We just know one thing about them. They're willing to help. They know that Jesus of Nazareth is nearby, that he's healed other people, and they think there's a really good chance, in fact, a high probability, that he can help their friend. And so we're told their goal is to, to pick him up and to carry him to where Jesus is and to lay him before Jesus. Apparently, they believe that the only hope this man has in his life is to somehow get in front of Jesus. They had heard, him, heard of him and perhaps even seen him touch other people and heal them from various kinds of infirmities. And they're thinking, probably, if we can just find a way to get him to Jesus, the circumstances might change for the better. And so that's what they set out to do. But they run into a problem almost immediately, and the problem is the crowds have gotten too big. Jesus' teaching has attracted a crowd. On this day, he's teaching inside a home, and so it had to have been a large home because there's a large crowd that's gathered. But clearly, the, the crowd has spilled out into the outside of the home, and there's no way for them to be able to get this man on his, on his bed or his mat into the house. I mean, obviously, it's, I guess it's like people on the roads, you know, here. They're not going to move for you if you're trying to come through, Right? And so they're toting this guy on a mat, and nobody's moving out of the way to let him through. And so they've got a problem. They can't get this man who needs to see Jesus to Jesus to be seen. So they come up with a solution. They take him on the roof. I, I got to tell you this. All week long, all I've been hearing is James Taylor in my head singing, Up on the Roof. I can't get it out of my head all week, and right, even right now, James is in the back of my head singing up on the roof. But that's where these guys go, up on the roof. They take him up there. Now, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us because we live in homes with pitched roofs, right? You probably live in a home with a pitched roof. Nobody would go up on the roof unless they absolutely had to and probably hated every second of it even then, right? I can't remember the last time I was on my roof. I had no reason to go up there. I probably should go up there. But this is what houses looked like in the first century. It was a little different situation. The homes had flat roofs. They were flat roofs that sort of looked like, like those, and, and they, they were supported by, by horizontal beams that ran the length of the room, and then they had sort of cross members that attached the beams, and then over the top of that, they would cover it with thatch and clay, and they would let it dry out and bake in the sun, and then they would, particularly in larger homes, they would tile the roof on top of the thatch and the clay. And the roof of the house was really actually a really important place. You and I don't hang out on the roof, but if you lived in the first century uh, in that region of the world where it gets exceedingly hot and you didn't have uh, uh, air conditioner inside your home, uh, the roof was a, a great place to go because you could get some fresh air up on the roof. You could get up there when you were hot and it was dank inside the house and you were all sweaty and you just needed some fresh air. You'd go hang out on the roof and, and get, at least get a little bit of a breeze or, or fresh air. It's cooler up there. So people would do all kinds of things on the roof. They would sometimes eat on the roof. They would sometimes go up on their roofs to pray. They would sometimes just sit around on the roof and fellowship with one another. They would dry laundry on the roof. You could do a lot of things on the roof. They had functional roofs. We don't have functional roofs. They just keep our air conditioner in is what they do, I think, right? So they take him up there. And so... Inevitably, if you use your roof that much, uh, you would need stairs to get up there to it. So you can see on these homes how some of the stairs kind of go up the side to make it up to the top of the roof. So likely that kind of a scenario that these guys run into. So you can sort of, you can sort of see these guys, uh, you know, working it out in their minds, right? They're ha hatching a brilliant plan. They're trying every direction to get in the house. They can't get in. And so they're putting their heads together and they're going, what are we going to do? How are we going to get him in there? And then somebody spots the staircase and has a brilliant idea. 
right? Let's just take him on the roof. If we can't get in through the door, we'll just get in from the roof. Their plan is to go on the roof, bust a hole through the roof, and lower this guy down right in the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. That's an ambitious plan, isn't it? You have to give him points for creativity. I mean, that's a pretty good one. Can you imagine the sight, though? They make it up to the top of the roof, and now they commence to destroying the roof in a big enough hole to let a full-grown man down through it. So I don't know what it was like being inside the house when that's going on, and Jesus is down there teaching, and there's a crowd filling the house and overflowing, you know, and all of a sudden this racket starts up on the roof, and uh, pieces of roof start to fall in, until all of a sudden there's a hole big enough for a man to come down. I mean, surely nobody saw that one coming, right? But these men actually pull it off. They actually pull it off. They, 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 they bust a hole off in the roof, they make it big enough, and they successfully lower this man down right in front of Jesus. That is impressive. Man, I need friends like that. Don't you? I admire these guys. The friends aren't really the focus of the text, but they shouldn't be missed. Because it's important to note, without them, this event doesn't happen. Without them, this man stays paralyzed. But they're remarkable. I mean, look at some of the, the, the sort of characteristics of these men. They're selfless, aren't they? I mean, in order for all of this to take place, these men had to stop thinking about themselves long enough to care about somebody else. I mean, that's hard enough and rare enough, right? Pretty much, if you just sort of navigate through the world around you today, most people spend most of their time thinking about themselves and thinking about things that pertain to them and things that they need to do for them and their family and their needs and their concerns. That consumes most of our time. It takes actually an awful lot of effort and selflessness to stop and set aside our own concerns and start sort of opening the aperture of our life and asking the question, what about the needs of other people around me? What about the needs of the people around me? Does somebody else need something that I can, that I can give? I mean, hundreds of people would have passed this man by every single day with no time to stop, no time to help, no time to care. But these men made time to stop. They made time to help. And they absolutely cared about his needs. There was no benefit to them to doing this. There was no anticipated benefit. The only thing they, they thought might happen is that this poor man that they cared about might just possibly get healed. They were selfless and they were loving and they were compassionate friends too, weren't they? I mean, this is an act of love. It's an act of compassion. They, they loved this man so much they were willing to be inconvenienced. They loved him enough to help him. When you think about the kind of people that were surrounding this man in his world, like the religious leaders that we're going to encounter, the religious leaders couldn't have cared less about this man. To them, he was absolutely invisible. He was untouchable. He was an outcast. He was a loser. They wouldn't have given him two seconds of their time. He was obviously a terrible sinner and absolutely not worthy of their time and attention. But these men loved him. They cared about him. They realized that on his own, he had absolutely no hope. He would be paralyzed for the rest of his life. He had no way to help himself. His only hope was Jesus of Nazareth, and he was completely unable to get himself to Jesus without somebody's help. The only way he could get there, somebody had to take him. Somebody had to take him. And in order for that to happen, somebody had to see value in him. They had to be able to see beyond his dis disability. They had to be able to see beyond the public opinion. They had to be able to see beyond all the, the stigmas attached to disability. They had to be able to see beyond all the accepted religious beliefs about people like him. They had to be able to see beyond his broken body. And they had to be able to come to the conclusion that behind that broken body, there's a person in there. And people matter to God so they ought to matter to us too somebody had to love him enough to overcome all that and to carry him to Jesus and that's what these friends did they loved him, they were compassionate, loving people they're determined too, right? they didn't give up easily it's good to have determined friends they could have just carried him there and the crowd was there and they went this way and went that way and said, you know, sorry buddy 
doesn't look like it's your day today. We're just going to take you on back home. But once this plan gets going, these guys are not going to be stopped. They are determined to get this man to Jesus. There is no overcomable obstacle that's going to stop them. They absolutely are not going to give up until the opportunity is absolutely gone. They are going to do whatever it takes, whatever it is that they have in their power and ability to do to get this man to Jesus. They're also strategic, aren't they? They're strategic. I like people who think outside the box. This is outside the box thinking, isn't it? Destroy the roof. Just might work, though. But it took some effort, and it took some planning, and it took some strategy. This was a group effort. A lot of people had to be involved in this. Several people were needed to carry him. There were probably some others that went along that had to make a hole to get the crowd up the stairs. That's what you say in the Navy, right? When there's a crowd, you just yell, make a hole. That's some military vocabulary for you for free this morning. Next time you're in a crowd, just yell, make a hole, and see what happens. I don't know what will happen. If it's Navy people, they'll get out of the way. If it's Army people, they'll just look at you like you're crazy. I don't know. But you also needed people to tear up the roof, and you needed a number of people to be able to lower this man down without dropping him on his head. They were strategic, and they were courageous too, right? There's a lot that could have gone wrong with this plan. It took a lot of courage to pull this thing off. They could have gotten in trouble in a lot of different ways. They were willing to risk it, though. Whatever the cost, whatever it took, they were getting this man to Jesus. They were willing to risk failure. They were willing to risk infuriating a homeowner. They were willing to risk the displeasure of Jesus at being interrupted because that was certainly possible. They were certainly willing to risk the displeasure of the crowd in interrupting the sermon. But they must have felt some sense of satisfaction when the mission was accomplished and Jesus and this man were in proximity. What's Jesus going to do? We got him to Jesus. What's Jesus going to do? What's he going to do? Nobody would have seen this coming. Jesus astounds them and he astounds everybody else and he does more for this man than anyone could have ever imagined. Listen to what Jesus says to him. Luke tells us, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. Man, your sins are forgiven. Jesus sees their faith and he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. All this commotion is going on. The crowd is interrupted. You know people are talking. They're looking at the ceiling there. What's going on? Who are these crazy people on the roof? The roof is coming in. Who's this guy coming through the ceiling, laying on the floor? All this commotion. What does Jesus see in the middle of that? He sees faith. He sees faith in action. He sees a, a, a genuine belief in his power and ability to change the situation that's motivated people to act and to act in pretty serious ways. These men have genuine faith. Genuine faith shows up in action. They were so sure of Jesus' power and ability to heal that they would go to great lengths to get this man to him. He saw their faith. Now Luke tells us it's their faith, and we're, we're, we have to pause and ask the question, who's he talking about? Is he talking about the faith of the friends? Or is he talking about the faith of the friends and the man? I am convinced it's the second. It's the faith of the friends and the man. We don't, we don't, we don't receive from Jesus based on vicarious faith from somebody else. It's the whole group of them. Their faith, the whole group, the men, the man, the, the people, the whole crowd. This whole plan has come together because a lot of people had faith that Jesus could change the circumstances of a man who's paralyzed. And Jesus looks at that. And he looks at the faith that would drive people to destroy a roof to get in front of him. And I just have to believe he was smiling. Don't you? I just have to believe he was smiling. Maybe even an open mouth laugh. Do you think of Jesus that way? I've said this before, but most of the like Jesus movies and TV shows that I saw coming up always had a Jesus who never laughed or smiled. He always looked very stoic. Like he was either angry or constipated, one or the other. And I always thought, man, I hope he's not like that. I don't think he's like that. I think he laughed, and I think he enjoyed life. I think he was filled with joy. And I think when he saw this whole thing played out, he had to get a big, a big kick out of this. He had to. And so he says to this man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, wait a minute. Since we've got Hurricane Elsa coming up, uh, I guess, from the tropics right now, we can say, wait, what? If you watched the Frozen movie, you understand that. If you didn't, then, well, I'm sorry. 
Who said anything about forgiving sins? This man had a physical problem. He needs legs to be made whole. And Jesus, first thing out of his mouth is, man, your sins are forgiven? What's that about? Jesus completely bypasses the physical problem. He doesn't even address the physical problem, at least initially. He doesn't heal him first off. In fact, what he chooses to do with this man laying on the ground in front of him is to ignore the immediate problem that everybody in the room sees and to get right at the heart of the worst problem that this man has. And the worst problem he has is not a paralyzed body. The worst problem he has is a paralyzed soul that's separated from God because of his sin. You see, the paralyzed body is a temporal problem. It, it, it only exists as long as the, the earthly body exists. When the man dies, that ceases to be a problem anymore. But a paralyzed soul is a whole different thing altogether, isn't it? That's an eternal problem. That's a problem that, that goes beyond the grave into eternity. That's a problem that damns a man's soul to eternal hell. Jesus was not oblivious to this man's physical suffering. He just knew he had a worse problem. And so he addresses that first. The paralyzed body is only of secondary importance to Jesus. His soul is the primary concern. And so Jesus addresses the first and the worst problem first. This man is a sinner. He's separated from God. He's positioned as God's enemy. And what he needs more than a body that's made whole is he needs a soul that receives the forgiveness of sin. He needs to be reconciled to his creator. And so Jesus says to him, man, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. You understand that God is a God of forgiveness, right? I, I sometimes get with people in counseling situations, and, and I, as we begin to talk, I begin to realize that their, their vision of God or their impression of God's character is one of a God who's always angry and vengeful that he's just waiting with a lightning bolt to zap them at any misstep. And that maybe even take some sort of cosmic pleasure in doing such things. God's wrath is a real part of his character. But he's also a God who loves to forgive. It doesn't matter the sin. It doesn't matter how deep. It doesn't matter how long. He's a God who is gracious and kind and willing to forgive. And that has been the consistent testimony all throughout Scripture. You could go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered humanity, right? In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned against God, created the, the gulf of separation because of sin. And even there, even then in Genesis 3.21, we're told, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Like almost immediately, God kills an animal and makes clothing to cover up their sin, if you will, visibly. And he does that to show that forgiveness is possible, but it comes at a cost. Death is the cost, and the shedding of blood is the cost. But he's a God who forgives. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 7, we're told, The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him, that's Moses there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. That's the Lord proclaimed his own name. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin." When God self-identifies himself to Moses, what is the primary thing that he wants Moses to understand about him? That he's a God who's gracious, and he's a God who's merciful, and he's a God who forgives. He's a God who forgives. The psalmist in Psalm 86, 5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love. To whom? To all who call upon you. Who finds the forgiveness and steadfast love of God? Everyone who calls upon him, who calls upon him with faith. Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. What about that? 
You mean I can come to God and I can seek his forgiveness and he will literally take my sins and my offenses against him and he will cast them as far as the east is from the west? Never to be brought up and held against me ever again? That's right. That's right. That's exactly what he'll do. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we're told this is precisely why Jesus came, right? In the birth narrative, we're told she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will do what? Say it with me. Save his people from their sins. What do people need most? They need to be saved from their sins. They need to be forgiven. They need to be reconciled to their creator. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to die for our sins. He came to shed his blood for our sins that we might be forgiven. Right before his arrest, Matthew 26, verse 28, he gathers with his disciples and they share this last Passover meal. And in the midst of that meal, he says, as he takes the cup, and he says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. So at the beginning of his life, we're told that he came to save his people from their sins. And just before his arrest and crucifixion, he visibly transforms the Passover meal. And he says, drink this cup. It is going to be a reminder to you of what I'm about to do. Shed my blood for your sins that you might be forgiven. Jesus chooses to heal this man's soul before he heals his body. His intention is to make him a whole person body and soul. But he addresses the worst problem first. Your sins are forgiven. Well, let's see how that goes off with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Pharisees and the scribes, I mean. On one of those days, he was teaching the Pharisees and teachers of the law. We already mentioned them a little further down. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, who can forgive sins but God? Who is this that speaks blasphemies? Now, you would think that proclaiming the forgiveness of somebody's sins would make people ecstatic, but it doesn't make everybody ecstatic. It makes the religious leaders livid. They are absolutely out of their head livid. They didn't care about this paralytic. They cared about preserving themselves and their system. They cared about preserving the, the, the whole system of Judaism that had people trapped in their sins, that made people dependent upon them to be able to, to do anything functionally. And so the Pharisees and the scribes who are here, they get together and they're asking this question, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now we need to pause and say, that's the right question, isn't it? That is the question. Who can forgive sins except God? What is the answer to that question? Well, the answer to the question is, who can forgive sins but God? Nobody. God is the only one who can forgive sins. Because all sins are at heart sins against whom? They're sins against him. The one against whom the sin is done is the one who can forgive. And only that one. The only person who can forgive sins is God. And so the right answer to the question is, the only person who can forgive sins is God, and Jesus is forgiving sins, therefore Jesus must be God. That's the right answer. That's the right conclusion. That's the conclusion that Luke wants Theophilus and you and me to get. But it's not the conclusion that the Pharisees and the scribes get. No, their conclusion is Jesus is a blasphemer. And their logic is fairly impeccable. Sin is an offense against the holiness and righteousness of God. Step one. Step two, only God can forgive sin. Step three, this man claims to be forgiving sin. Therefore, he's claiming to be God which is blasphemy. It's good theology, by the way. It is good theology. Anybody who claims to forgive sin that isn't God is a blasphemer. That's for sure. But they're appalled that somebody would come and say to someone else, your sins are forgiven. Who can do that? Even the high priest couldn't do that. He wouldn't dare do that. Even on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and he made sacrifice for the sins of the people and he came out of that of that place, even then, he didn't pronounce forgiveness on sins. He only proclaimed God's forgiveness of their sins. He would never dream of saying to somebody, giving the insinuation that he could forgive sins. And here's Jesus saying to this man, man, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. 
In their minds, he's a blasphemer. Now, sometimes when you read, you'll read uh, uh, people uh, who write and who like to make the argument that it goes along the lines of this. Jesus never claimed to be divine. Have you heard that? Have you had anybody tell you that? Jesus never really claimed to be God. This has been popular in sort of ebbs and flows in, in the history of the church. But there are those who have argued, and there's many, many volumes written on this issue, who make the argument that Jesus never really claimed to be God, that really that was a part of the early church's invention. They sort of glorified and they sort of exaggerated the things that he said and the things that he did. And it was the early church who claimed that he was God. They made that assumption and they made that sort of dictate and they sort of spread that around. But Jesus himself, they would argue, never really claimed to be God. You'll run into that if you talk to too many people or you read a whole lot. But you need to understand, here is a text that makes it clear. Everybody there understood exactly what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming to forgive sins and that's only something God can do. It was a clear claim to be God. The Pharisees and the scribes knew that, and they reacted in kind. He's either God or he's a blasphemer. He's one or the other. Jesus perceived their thoughts. He answered them, why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? <laughs> I love it. Jesus doesn't de-escalate the situation. He escalates it. And he says to them, hey, guys, I know what you're thinking over there. I mean, he goes right at them. He directs it right at them, right? The scribes and the Pharisees. It's clear that he didn't hear them talking about it. He perceived their thoughts. Somehow, he knew what they were thinking. Maybe they were whispering to each other. And he says to them, hey, guys, let me, let me ask, hey, fellas, let me ask you a question. Which of these two things is easier to say to somebody? Is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or is it easier to say, get up and walk? Now, what's the answer to that question? Which is easier to say? All right, let's take a poll. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. Is that the easier one to say? How about get up and walk? Is that the easier one to say? Okay, some of you are on, on a holiday fog here. The easier to say is your sins are forgiven. That's the easier thing to say. Why is that the easier thing to say? Because there's absolutely no way to confirm or deny it. I can say to anybody, your sins are forgiven, and who can prove me wrong? Anybody can say that. But if I say to a paralytic, rise and walk, well, that's something that's immediately verifiable, right? It's immediately verifiable. He's either going to rise and walk or he's not, and it's going to be clear to everybody whether I am who I say I am. So the answer to the question, which is easier to say, is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can confirm that or deny it. Which one's actually easier to do? I don't know. I think forgiveness of sins is probably the harder to do, right? Because only God can do that. So he puts them in a, in a proposition that's hard. It's a setup, right? It's a setup, which is easier to say. They know the answer to the question. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. And Jesus then follows that up by simply saying this, that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Why does Jesus heal this man? because he wants to make it clear to everybody in that place that he has the ability, the power, and the authority to forgive sins. The thing that they would have said is the harder thing to do to tell the man to get up and walk, he does it. He does it. If that's the harder thing to say and he can do that, surely he can do the easier thing too, right? So he tells this man, get up and walk. Luke has already shown us Jesus' power over nature, over demons, over disease, and now Luke shows us really the, the capstone of all of this, that the Jesus who did all those things also has the power and the authority to forgive your sins. Nobody else has the power and the authority to do that except God in human flesh, and that's who this man is. That's who he is pick up your bed and go home. Immediately he gets up and he obeys. This man picks up his mat and he takes off, probably skipping down the road singing zippity-doo-dah all the way home, right? Can you imagine? Can you imagine seeing something like this? I mean, people busting through the roof and Jesus forgiving sins and all this going on. The man gets up and he takes off. What do you, what do you make of that? 
Well, what people made, they were amazed. Amazement seized them all. They're filled with awe, saying, we've seen extraordinary things today. That's like the understatement of the year, isn't it? We've seen extraordinary things today. I don't think that's what I would have been saying. I would have been saying something, but yeah, that was pretty extraordinary. I would have run around telling everybody what I saw. And that's probably what many of them did. What a remarkable thing. What a remarkable event. What does it all mean to you, and what does it all mean to me? Let me just wrap it up with a couple of points that I think are sort of nails for you to hang your hat on. Luke wants us to understand that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh who has the power and authority to forgive sin. He wants us to understand alongside that that sin is the worst problem any one of us has. It doesn't matter what affliction we're dealing with in our bodies. It doesn't matter what other kind of problem we're dealing with in our life, in our family, in our work, in our experience here on earth. The worst problem that any human being has is the worst problem that every human being has. We are at heart sinners who rebelled against our Creator. And our sin is an offense against His holiness and righteousness. And our sin deserves death. Somebody's going to die for our sins and pay the price. And our sin separates us from God. And it positions us not as His friends, but as His enemies. And there's absolutely nothing we can do to bridge the gulf. We're just as helpless to forgive our own, to get our sins forgiven, as that paralyzed man was to get to Jesus on his own and to make himself walk. We have no ability. No ability. Our only hope is this man, Jesus. The only hope for this paralyzed man is the only hope for you. It's the only hope for me. Our only hope is that we would come before him and cast ourselves before him and place our faith in him and hear him say, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Sin's the worst problem you've got and Jesus is the only one who can resolve it. He died on a Roman cross where he shed his own blood, dying in our place that we might be forgiven. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted your life to Jesus, you're in your sins and you've got a fatal, eternal problem that's going to condemn your soul to hell unless you trust in Christ. Unless you trust in Christ. You need Jesus. You don't need a self-help guru. You don't need to try and be a better person. You don't need to go to church more often. Well, you might need to do that, but you don't need to do that in order to resolve that problem. You need to trust in Christ and ask him to forgive you. He's your only hope. And then secondarily, I just simply challenge you, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, to reflect on the role these friends played in the life of this man. They loved him enough to get him to Jesus. They were determined that no obstacle was going to get in the way of them getting him to Jesus. They were courageous. They were willing to risk a lot to get him to Jesus. And it leads me to ask the question, what do we do to get people to Jesus? You may not have a paralyzed person in your life, but you know people who have that sin problem, who don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They have no ability to get themselves to Christ. They have no desire, probably, to get themselves to Christ. They need somebody to bring them. And Jesus uses people just like you and me to be his hands and his feet to get lost people to the Savior. Hey, these men couldn't, they couldn't heal their friend. All they could do was get him in front of Jesus and let Jesus do the work of healing. You and I can't save anybody, but by Skippy, we can get him to Jesus. We can bring him the gospel. We can introduce him to our Lord and Savior. Do you love people enough to do that? Are you willing to pause from the busyness of your own life and set aside your own cares and concerns long enough to care about somebody who's lost and dying who needs to get to Christ? Do you love the people around you enough to be willing to take them?
what things are getting in the way right now from you taking somebody to Jesus that you know that needs him. Let's pray together. Lord, you're amazing. You're marvelous. Just when we think it can't get better, we see more of who you are. And we're all struck all, all at once again. Lord Jesus, you don't just heal disease. You don't just cast out demons and you don't just command nature. But you can heal our soul. You can deal with the worst problem that any of us have. Our sin that separates us from you. By dying on a cross and shedding your blood, you've paid the full price for our sin. And you stand before us right now offering forgiveness to all who come and call upon you like we read in the Psalms. To any who will bow before you, honoring you as the Son of God, God in human flesh, who place their faith in you, give their lives to you. You'll say to them this morning just what you said to that man, your sins are forgiven. You'll grant them eternal life. I pray if there's any who've never experienced that this morning in this room, that right now would be the time that they would find it. By the power of your Spirit, draw them, we pray. And Lord, for the rest of us, as we think about the role that we have in the lives of the people around us, the world around us, to bring people to you. Or just thinking about that is convicting to our souls. It really is. Because I'll confess in my own life, and I trust it's probably true with many others this morning. So much of our, my time gets caught up with my life and my concerns and my things. And I never stop to see the lost people around me who are dying, who are desperate, who have no way to get to Jesus unless somebody like me takes them there. Forgive me for that, Lord. Even this week, Lord, give me eyes for the lost around me. Give me a heart that cares enough to stop and talk to them about Jesus. Give me the kind of determination for the people that are in my circles of influence. I'd be willing to do anything to get them to you. Help me not to give up when they don't respond right the first time, but to be persistent, to be strategic, to even to think outside the box of how I might get them to you. Forgive my complacency, Lord. Forgive our complacency, Lord. Forgive our apathy. Give us a love for the lost, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.